speed up, but look on the ASA. My gosh, they're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. It's a worldwide phenomenon. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes all running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. This is James Fox and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and last year we finished off with a huge interview with ex-CIA John Ramirez. John has done many, many interviews now over the last few months and his, his story is fantastic. His, his manner, the way he speaks, what he speaks about is incredible and we didn't get all the time we wanted in the last interview to really get through as many of your listener questions as we could. So John has kindly come back on in this new year to get through some of those listener questions uh, in the time that we've got. So, John, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Andy, thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure, and I know many, many people are looking forward to hearing from you again. Uh, I'm going to be really selfish and kick off with one of my own questions, though, John, because just a few hours ago, I was I was scrolling through my Twitter feed, and I noticed you had replied to J. Christopher King of the Experiencer Group, who yes. is interviewing Leslie Kane. Yes. And if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read your question. Your question to Jay was, Hi Jay, my question is, are you aware of the government's interest in experiencers as sources of information and understanding the complexity of the phenomenon? In other words, did the UAP task force interview experiencers? Now, my question to you, John, off the back of that, is that just a curiosity of yours or does that question come from a place of knowledge? It really doesn't come from a place of knowledge. It's something that I'm very curious about because I believe that unless we have the experiencer contributing to the dialogue, that we're only getting part of the story. And it's hard to deny that people have experiences with the phenomenon. There are so many witnesses to this. In fact, the fact that, uh, for example, uh, Dr. Lakatsky in his uh, Skinwalkers of the Pentagon book talked about these experiences that are hard to explain, the hitchhiker effect and so forth. I mean, obviously, if it's in the book that the DIA has sanctioned uh, as being unclassified and able to publish, you would think that the government has some knowledge of it. And I'm curious because Leslie Keene has so many deep contacts within the government, if she could uh, perhaps enlighten us as to whether or not experiencers have any contribution to make or have already made contributions uh, in the dialogue um, talking about the phenomenon. Back in October or November now, last year seems a long time away, I I done a series of interviews with experiencers, allowing them the chance to share their story. It wasn't a, a digging in and picking apart the story. It was just tell your story, put it out there to the world and, and let people decide. Uh, and one of the experiencers, we were having a conversation back and forward, John, and he was really frustrated at the lack of representation uh, at the governmental level or just at the table of conversation. And I, I put to him that I strongly feel that it's very likely that some of these people in positions of power or influence are potentially experiencers themselves. We just don't know that. So that there probably is a high likelihood that experiencers do have a seat at the table as such. What do you think the possibility of that is? Well, I'm, I'm thinking that it's a high possibility. Um, obviously, I was former government and I've had experiences. I've already related that uh, when I was at CIA, I've talked to other CIA officers and other IC officers who've had experiences. 
Um, one of the questions, if I was interviewing Lou Elizondo, I would ask him, Lou, have you had experiences? And I don't think any interviewer has ever asked that. Or if they have, he probably did not answer it. Um, but it's coming from a place of like curiosity, but also the fact that so many of us in government have had experiences. And maybe some of the naval aviators who flew the FA-18s have had experiences. Um, I know that um, there's an author, Matthew Roberts, who wrote a book called Initiated, and he was on an aircraft carrier, not the Nimitz uh, aircraft carrier, uh, but I think it was the Theodore Roosevelt, if I'm not mistaken. He has had experiences when the Teddy Roosevelt encountered uh, a UAP. So I'm just asking her um, if she could like enlighten us if she has inside information, um, not revealing any names or anything like that, a yes or no. <laughs> that would, to me, is, would be very enlightening. I think the issue with, with people like Lou coming out and saying they've had an experience, if they had, I believe, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, at the end of Unidentified Series 1 or Series 2, he is asked about his own potential experiences, and it's one of those moments where he says, He's not going to talk about that at the no, moment. And he, take, he takes the mic off and stands up. And for the camera, it's a kind of powerful moment. I imagine, though, if if someone like Lou comes out or, or Christopher Mellon, you know, Jim Semivan, Hal Puthoff and says, yep, I've had experiences. I'm an experiencer. I've had X, Y or Z happen to me over my life. I think going forward, every interview they do in the mainstream, especially for someone like Lou and Fox News or CNN or Good Morning America, that's the focus of the interview, not the political progress. And I can right. see why they maybe don't have those conversations because it takes away from a mainstream, not people like us who want to have those conversations, right. but maybe for the sake of progress, it's something that it's a frustration people have to deal with. But I can I can totally appreciate from an experiencer's point of view, not that I am one, but other people who I've been and I've spoken to where they want that conversation to be he had and heard. I just see it as being a few years down the line still before the mainstream can can swallow that pill. Do you think that's fair? That is fair. And so um, in the NDAA, um, there is a, uh, a provision in it for the Department of Defense to inform Congress of the physiological and psychological effects of encountering the phenomenon. Hmm. So that might be a segue into a honest discussion about experiences. It, it's the baby steps, isn't it? Where you're you're mm -hmm. starting to talk about, as you say, an effect, because even it, it sounds like a boring thing talking about insurance, but that, that could be something that's huge in the future. Insurance payouts for people who have had experiences. And if you've been in the military and, and your, your craft, your aircraft is next to one of these things and you, you have those effects coming off it, we hear about Rendlesham, you know, and what may or may not have mm -hmm. happened there, then there potentially are millions of dollars of payouts down the line in the future. And it, it really opens up a bit of a Pandora's box of where the conversations could potentially go. Yeah, I think the liabilities might be of concern to the government. Um, but still, uh, from experiencers' viewpoint, uh, I have not experienced like mantis beings or I don't believe I've experienced Nordics. If I have, I don't remember them. I've always said that the beings I have experienced tend to be more of the highly evolved but reptilian type of being. So I'm curious to know, like, are these all manifestations of one entity um, presenting itself to us? Or are there separate entities representing separate beings or separate um, species of beings, if you will? So I, I think talking about experiences will open up the dialogue as to the real question as to not that these UAPs are real. We know that they're real. We have video of them. We have eyewitnesses of them. But the beings then open up the conversation about why are they here? Why are they presenting themselves to experiencers? What is the message that they're conveying to us? I think that's as important, if not more important than, you know, just seeing a craft. If that conversation were to happen tomorrow, let's just say there's a huge, huge movement forward. And in Congress, on live television, we're hearing experiencers 
uh, coming out and having those discussions, even potentially high-ranking politicians talking about their experiences, people like yourself. How do you think the public would react to that, hearing that conversation, which is one of the more woo and stigmatised aspects of this whole discussion, happening in a serious way? Do you not feel there would be a fear factor then from the public? Because how can you, as a government, protect the public from something they have no control over potentially and is that maybe why we don't have that conversation at this point well i definitely don't think that's going to be the first thing uh that's going to be talked about i don't think that's going to be the first thing that the 180 day report yeah will feature and by the way that 180 day report coincides with when the james webb space telescope uh, takes what NASA terms first light. That is, they are actually going to do the science mission of it in June of 2022. Um, so definitely, the government hasn't really explained the UAP presence yet. Um, other than, okay, there's videos. We have three of them. But they've not really acknowledged or given us any more detail of the other craft that was part of the UAP task force. So I think we need to talk about the other craft. There are 140, other than the three that we know about, and plus one balloon, there are 140 craft that the government really hasn't explained as to what they are. Now, one of them, they obviously said it was a balloon. So it leads me to believe that the 140 that the government has data about are not balloons. There's things that they can't explain. Um, and I wish they would explain that. So I think they need to come out with a more thorough um, disclosure or dissemination of what those 140 craft were. And to the point that what I wanted was dates, times, and locations. And going back to your experience of question, then um, let's say I've experienced um, something on a certain date and a certain time associated with a certain thing I saw in the sky, an orb, let's say. And if the government has data on that orb at that location, on that date and time, that gives me some validation that what I saw was real. Uh, and so I think they need to talk about that first. They probably just do the nuts and bolts, material science part of it before they even address the experience part of it. But you made a great point, Andy. There's probably liabilities uh, about any kind of harm that that experience may might have caused. I have not had um, anything debilitating happen to me, unlike those who've experienced the hitchhiker effect. And whether that's just Skinwalker or that's actually part of a larger UAP experience, I don't know. I don't think the book went into a lot of detail on the experiencer side. They basically talked about Skinwalker and the phenomenon there. So yeah, I, I think first baby steps, as you say, and then maybe along the line, uh, we'll get an honest discussion. The last report is due 30 September 2026. That's when the legislation has provisions for reports from the Department of Defense. What happens after that, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I was listening to Lou on Coast to Coast AM, and he keeps saying, well, I can't explain it now, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, so forgive me, Lou, if I got it wrong. But he keeps saying, um, well, you know, why don't you just have a hobby for the next five years? <laughs> pick up, like, something. Pick up a hobby. Go fishing, whatever. And the answer will come in five years. And so that's, like, 2026, 2027, thereabouts. So maybe that's when we get the full depth uh, and scope uh, the full breadth of what's really going on. One more thing I want to touch on, John, that you mentioned before I, I get to the listeners' questions. Uh, you mentioned about, as an experiencer, you really want to know, are these one set of beings that are manifesting themselves in different <coughs> ways, or are we dealing with multiple different races, entities, beings, you know? In, in your own mind, is there a difference between if it was either or? Do you have a preference or what do you think the, the connotations are of it being a race of beings manifesting in different ways or that we have various different races of beings? I don't have a preference. I think them uh, 
they being beings of non-human intelligence is enough for me. Uh, and then I'll be curious to know, where did you come from? How long have you been here? Uh, that would be my second question after identifying who they are. But I don't have any preference myself. Having said that, I acknowledge that not, not all experiences have been pleasant for the experiencers. Mm -hmm. Some have had harmful effects, both physically and psychologically. So I have not had that type of experience. But since I've had more, I would say, benevolent or let's say not malevolent experiences and other people have had more malevolent experiences, it would lead me to believe that they're different and they have different agendas. And what are the agendas and how does that matrix back to who they are and where they came from and why are they here? No, certainly. Let's get into these listener questions, John. Thanks for those answers. Uh, the first one is from Look Up Lulu. Um, what do your old colleagues think of your recent decision to come out? Uh, they're highly supportive. Um, so when you say old colleagues, I'm not meaning the entire CIA. <laughs> but the people I've known that I still have contact with. And to be honest, it's not like dozens. It's basically like a half a dozen people that I've maintained a personal contact with since 2009 when I retired, they're highly supportive. Have you had any colleagues that you either were friendly with in the past but had lost contact or people that you worked with that you weren't necessarily friendly with get in touch with you since to, to voice their opinion on what you're saying, what you're doing, and any behaviors? No, but if they're out there listening to this, I wish they would contact me. That would be excellent. I would love to talk to them and encourage them if they're retired to encourage them to come out with what they know in the proper way. Like I did. I went through the front door. I am not a whistleblower. Everything I say uh, needs to be unclassified. CIA says you can talk as long as it's unclassified, which is why I presented the 74 slides with everything I could think of that that made sense to me the way I connected the dots. So I put in things that I don't necessarily hold tightly at all. A lot of it I hold very loosely, but in order to talk about it officially, I needed to put it in there for CIA review. So when they see the slides, they think, oh, John believes this and John believes that. Not necessarily, but I've heard this from others and I've experienced some of it myself. So it's it was worthy of me to put it in the slides so that CIA can say, no, you can't talk about this, or yes, you can. So yes, I can talk about everything I say. And so with those guidelines in place, I hope to encourage others who have information to present that information in the same way I did, unclassified, uh, so that they can share their information with all of us. And maybe someday you can interview them. Yep, if they're there, get in touch. I know on Ryan Sprague, Summer in the Skies, he he spoke to um, Adrian, and his surname escapes me, who apparently, listening to this podcast, decided to come out and share his story about events at the UAP for, um, with UAP at a nuclear facility. So again, if that if that is the case, then then fantastic. Reach out to myself or uh, reach out to any of the other podcast hosts and, and get in touch. But yeah, it'd be a pleasure to speak to you. Um, a follow-up question, though, John, from Look Up Lulu was, with your technical background, is there an affordable and accessible way the general public can detect UAP? Well, um, I've had an interesting experience this past weekend. Uh, my wife and I went up to Sedona, Arizona, and we went on the UFO tour hosted by Melinda Leslie. And it was a group of us, I think seven people plus Linda, Melinda. And we went out to a location that was open skies and she handed out laser pointers and these military grade goggles and told us about some of the past encounters they've had with things flying up in the sky. Now, having worked in the intelligence community and having used data from these satellites, I kind of know what to look for in a satellite. And I kind of know what the performance of the satellite is when it's in orbit. And one thing the satellites don't do is maneuver. They do not maneuver. And I also know that if it's an aircraft, helicopter, jet, military jet, commercial flight, that they do have navigation lights flashing. 
For example, a military craft will flash three lights in rapid succession. And so that you know that's a military airplane. Um, but what I saw were objects in the sky that had a steady trajectory. And most satellites go from west to east or from the southwest to the northeast or from the northwest to the southeast. They're basically going from one's left to one's right. But there were those I saw that did not do that. They were actually flying to the point where I saw one through those goggles. It was orange with the unaided eye, just looking at it. Through the goggles, of course, everything turns green. And I looked at it, and we all saw this orange orb, and it was hopping and skipping it around, left and right, a little bit to and fro, looked at it through the goggles, and it was a bright object doing that. And I said, that's not satellite. That is not a satellite. And with some laser pointers, you can point lasers in the Arizona skies if you do not laze an aircraft. So you make sure it's not an aircraft and it's something high in the sky that we see with the military-grade goggles. And we did three flashes quick in succession and watched that object through our goggles, all seven of us plus Melinda, and it flashed back. Did anyone film or was there any pictures taken or again, was it just through the goggles? It was through the goggles, but fortunately happened to be a film crew there doing a documentary about Melinda Leslie. And I don't know what they got, but apparently I heard that they did get some video of what we saw. So that's all I can disclose because I think it's in pre-production. And so I'll wait for Melinda to either talk about it or the production company to talk more about the release of their documentary. And that's good to hear that something is captured though on, on camera and um, that we'll look forward to that potentially coming out through Melinda as well. Uh, next up, Jzeb asks, John, in your opinion, what would full disclosure look like from the government? I have no idea. I, I know one thing. It, I don't think it's going to be the, a president of the United States standing at the podium or in the Oval Office having a talk with the American people. I, I don't see that happening. I think it'll be through the legislative process of having witnesses appear before Congress from the government giving public unclassified testimony. And if there are classified things they need to talk about, because I would imagine if the data came from a classified source, such as a satellite that they do not want to acknowledge the existence of, that it will go behind closed doors, a closed door session. But I think it's going to be something like that, where witnesses every 180 days or within the 180-day report or whenever Congress wants them to appear, that they will talk about what data they have collected that went into that report. So it's going to be more like what we're experiencing now. Um, There will be like, Maybe videos shown. There might be more eyewitness testimonies of military personnel, um, government officials, whoever's DNI um, after Avril Haynes or maybe Avril Haynes herself would eventually talk about this in a more what I call a controlled dissemination way. And to a point where then maybe a president or I'm hoping that this will happen in other countries as well, and maybe prime ministers and presidents, to me, that is the stronger case, appear at a UN General Assembly meeting and talk about this honestly. That's what I see as happening, but not like out of the blue, here's the president saying, oh, by the way, these craft are real and we have ET, non-human intelligence beings on the planet. That's not going to happen, I don't think. That will cause a panic or cause uh, some effects that will be unintended. The the UN being the platform for that potentially would be interesting. And we know through San Marino, 
that there's the potential for Project Titan are submitting a case to to have a small, very small UAP office. Um, uh, Paolo Gazzardi was on the podcast last year. He's the Italian representative of ISAR and part of Project Titan. And he mentioned that they would look to have maybe a one or two two-person body within the UN to again investigate and study UFOs, which would be amazing. But what do you think the chances are that we get some form of disclosure or even high-quality evidence from something like the Galileo Project or or UAPX, which are private organisations looking to carry out this sort of work? I think the chances of that happening will be much greater than coming from government because this is citizen science. And in both organizations, you have the participation of those who were associated with the government. Uh, for example, I believe that Hal Puthoff has joined uh, Project Galileo, if I'm not mistaken. I think I read that recently. So somebody of that caliber joining a citizen science organization like that speaks volumes as to, first, the seriousness of these civilian organizations. And it, you know, just because it's civilian science I don't believe that they will not have impressive capabilities. What you can buy in commercial space now in terms of like infrared devices uh, is phenomenal, phenomenal, really great advances in the devices that can capture data. So I think it will happen that way first. And of course, um, from the government science perspective, um, I have high hopes for the James Webb Space Telescope finding something. What What do you think the James Webb is likely to find? Because I think we're still a long ways off having cameras that pick up 8K images of, of galaxies far away. And very, it's still very scientific because what we've been used to hearing is that they, they still measure that there's a planet in front of a star because they see a spot of light, it dims and they can measure it, which is incredible to think of. But what's the James Webb likelihood? What's the likelihood of it capturing something and what would that something be? Spect spectrographic data across many bands of infrared. And there, uh, if you know something about uh, spectrographic analysis, chemists and other scientists can tell the composition of something by looking for peaks in the IR wavelength. So we have datas, databases that will show us if you have uh, a line of a certain element, what, what that would look like across the IR spectrum. There will be a peak there or peaks representing a certain type of element. So when you look at an exoplanet, instead of just looking for dimming of light from a star, there's a strong possibility that they can actually see the composition and the atmosphere of that planet. So what would you look for? Water vapor has been mentioned by NASA as one thing the James Webb Telescope can detect. The other is methane. Methane is organic. If you find methane in water, the chances of that planet being able to host life or the beginnings of life is very, very high. And there are other elements that can be detected that can be correlated to a planet habitable for life. I'm certainly excited to see what James Webb uh, throws up and, and the potential that we get within it as well, not just from, from a UAP point of view, just from a science point of view and, and, and searching through the universe. I think it's going to be pretty exciting. Um, next question though, John, from Gareth. Do you get frustrated by people who doubt your, um, who have doubts about you despite your qualifications? Not really. Um, and I, I would say this. Um, I want them to have doubts about me because that shows me that you're, you care enough to investigate things for yourself. And for me, that is a hallmark of a good analyst, that you just don't take things at face value. You actually dig deep, dig deep into sources. Sourcing is very important. If they don't believe what I say, that's fine by me because I know what I experienced. And I'm not here to convince anyone of my beliefs. Those are my beliefs. If you happen to share my beliefs or had similar beliefs, then we can have a conversation that would be interesting. Not to say that your belief or my belief is in any way more valid than the other. 
But I encourage people to, when people say, I worked for CIA, I worked for NSA, I worked for the government, and I know this about UAPs, the first thing you should do is try to get some background on them. And I have released my resume to certain investigators. Like, for example, Whitley Strieber has my entire resume. Um, I will be interviewed this Sunday by George Knapp. He has my resume. And in my resume, I have my full name, my full residential address from where I'm speaking to you now, and my personal cell phone number. That's all included, plus everything I did in two pages for the CIA and for the ODNI. So the first thing I would tell people is that if someone says, I work for the CIA and it's so secret, I can't tell you, I would doubt that person. The reason why is because when I retired, I had to write my resume as an assignment in my retirement class for the Office of Security because the Office of Security would like to know what you might say in terms of getting a job outside of government or even with a defense contractor. You'll have to produce some resume and they want to review what you say in the resume. So make sure it's not revealing anything classified. So if you saw my resume, you'd be highly impressed with how much detail I put in it with a timeline with the most recent with the ODNI National Counterproliferation Center and everything I did for the ODNI back to the various directorates in the CIA I worked for. I went into great detail of what I did. And they should produce that resume in order to validate themselves. And then with these resumes in hand, you can go back and start. Wikipedia is a great friend. Go to see if these organizations actually actually existed and what context do were they created within the USIC. So I encourage that. I, it doesn't bother me at all, at all. What bothers me is that having spent 25 years in ballistic missile analysis, ballistic missile defense, anti-ballistic missile analysis, when someone tells me, oh, you know, I looked up on Google or whatever source about um, hyperglide vehicles, and I know about hyperglide vehicles, I, that stops the conversation. You're not qualified to talk to me about hyperglide vehicles, someone who spent an entire career looking at ballistic missiles and their reentry vehicle systems associated with those ballistic missiles. And so that's when I say stop. You're not qualified at all. Uh, but if they're using that as uh, some way to say that I'm not qualified to say what I say, or what I really like is that uh, John didn't have the clearances to know what he knows. That is ridiculous because it's a person who doesn't know how the clearance system works, who doesn't know how you get read into these programs and how you get read out of programs and the interlocking relationship between programs. Um, so, I would say, you know, look at the person's resume. There's no such thing as I can't talk about it. I think in this subject and in, in conversation, John, as well, there, there's a fine line between opinion and belief. And I think on many of your interviews I've heard, you, you tend to to put the fence up between this is what I think through either it's because of a, a position or a learned knowledge or or something you maybe can or can't touch on. But then there's also, I have a belief through mm -hmm. experiences or I can't prove it or I've heard someone say, and I think in this subject is very, very important. What one of my, my turnoffs is always when people mention, you know, TR3B as, yep, that's that's this and it's, it's so definite. Or I've mentioned before, you know, oh, they're, 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 those are Palladians and we don't know. And it's until you can provide that proof and hard evidence, it's fine to have that opinion. And like me, there'll be things that you say that I think that sounds really, really on the money. That sounds credible. And other things I'll think to myself, just because of my opinion on the subject, ah, I don't know. But that's that's fine for me to have that. And you've got right. to have that healthy conversation. But right. it's when people start to turn opinions and beliefs into hard facts 
that's where the conversations can kind of stop and barriers can be put up. So I, I appreciate that. Um, Gareth had a follow-on for you though, John, and okay. he wanted to know, have you ever undergone hypnosis to understand your experiences? Yes. Uh, Gareth, thank you for that question. Uh, this is very important. Um, there is a protocol by Dolores Cannon called QHHT. Uh, it stands for quantum. I get the H's mixed up. So let me just say what QHHT might stand for and the H's might go sure. either way. Quantum healing hypnosis technique. I think I got that right. Quantum healing hypnosis technique. Uh, there are practitioners uh, just about every country because Dolores Cannon uh, internationally um, had seminars to train already professional therapists into this modality. So these aren't like people off the street doing this. These are people who've already had uh, some uh, therapy certification. They're licensed to practice what they practice. And this is just another tool for them to use. And so I've had QHHT, hypnosis regression, past life regression. And it's been very effective to help me understand uh, the reasons why I might be experiencing what I'm experiencing. Can you tell the audience anything from that that, that kind of came up that maybe it's not too personal to you? Well, uh, I've already stated that uh, I remember some things from just my dreams or my visions or whatever. But the other things that um, came up after the fact was what I described uh, in a earlier interview with Exo Metaverse. This is back before anyone knew me. Um, it was over the spring of last year where I described uh, the experience of being born. That was not something that I recalled readily. I recalled it in the context of having this QHHT hypnosis session where I actually remember dying and then looking back at my body and seeing the circumstance of where I was at, turning back around. And by the way, the tunnel isn't like completely black for me. It was like a real dark gray that got progressively lighter. And as I felt this motion of this tunnel uh, up, up ahead in the distance, I saw two beings of light, light beings come toward me. And one went to one side of me, the other went to the other side of me, and they were there to escort me home. And I remember being escorted all the way home where this place was more lighter and seeing other beings like me, light beings. And having found that I finally reached home, this is where I, I came from. These are my people, so to speak. I'm home. But then later, having to come back to Earth and not wanting to come back. I resisted coming back, but um, a voice on one side said, you have to go back because you have work to do. And so I was led to see a vast plane of little spheres of light. And one of them was where I picked, I want to be this person. And looking into that sphere of light, I saw this person's entire life from birth to death. And said, this, this is the person I need to be to do my work, to do my mission. And remembering being born at that point. So that was an experience highly personal that I've had under QHHT. And so what is that work? What is that mission? It's exactly what I'm doing right now. Speaking with you, Andy, and sharing my experiences with others. So for me, it's not about talking about UAPs that interests me. For me, it's talking about the experiences and why you're here and what the mission we have here might be. And now, so that's that's one in, incident, where, and it goes into much greater detail. But in the interest of time, I no, no, that's, that's fair it. enough. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that, and I would encourage people to go and listen to that original interview as well. If it's if it's back from when you weren't known, and it's a, it's a podcast I've not heard of myself, I, I'll go and check that out and encourage people to do that too. I'll, I'll try find the link for it actually after this interview, John. I just want to ask one thing because that that's a pretty incredible experience to talk about and share, and I, I appreciate that. Something that some people in this subject struggle with is when things start to go a little more out there. Yeah. especially when you hear talk about past lives, regressions. How do you differentiate between extremely vivid dreams, especially in like a regression state, as opposed to events that are actually happening? I'll just give a quick example. Like I, I've always had kind of lucid dreams most of my life. I can have still very intense dreams where I can feel the ground under my feet. I'll touch a wall. I know I'm dreaming. You know, I can stand in water. You feel the water and I'll have conversations with people in my dreams fully aware I'm dreaming. That's that's always happened since I was a child. At what point can, can you comfortably differentiate that I'm having a genuine experience experience, or this is a dream? Uh, for me, it's more of when I've had that experience. And so if I'm in bed, for example, and it's night and I go to sleep and between the time I went to sleep and between the time I woke up, let's say I remember something of an extraordinary high strangeness. Mm -hmm. Well, then I can say, well, that was a dream, but is that dream part of the experience? Because it seems that the experiences tend to happen at night in bedrooms. You've probably seen many eyewitness accounts. I was in bed and a certain time of during the night, I had this experience and I woke up with this experience. For some reason, they like bedrooms. And when they see other beings, they're in bed and they have what we call sleep paralysis. So that tells you right there that they were asleep at one time and now they have some conscious awareness of something going on around them with some other being or entity. Um, at other times, when I'm in meditation, that is, I'm consciously awake, but I place myself into a deep meditation. And then um, I don't like the word download uh, because it sounds like I'm a computer and somebody's programming me. It's not like that. But you get a strong conviction, let's say, a really strong conviction. You get these images in the inner mind, the, uh, the third eye, let's say. Mm -hmm. Then I know I'm conscious. So that's how I differentiate. It's mostly like, where were you when this happened? And that's the easiest way I can explain it. No, thank I appreciate that. It's, it's hard when you've not had those experiences yourself to, to think what those would be like. Um, so I appreciate the explanation. That'll help some people and myself. Next question is from Joe, who's a member of our Discord channel. Um, he wants to know that in a recent interview on Unidentified Celebrity Review, hi to Lou and the gang, you talked quite openly about Sarians and their reptilian bloodline. Is this something you can elaborate on? Are you asserting that there are beings from a reptilian bloodline already here on Earth? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because previously, uh, Andy, you talked about things that you were informed of and things that are beliefs based on experience. So what I was informed of, without evidence, by the way, I wasn't shown the evidence, so I can't give you the evidence. I have no evidence. But I was informed by a high official in CIA in a meeting sponsored by another high official in CIA with two senior officers and myself attending that I recognized personally. There could be other CIA there that I didn't know. And definitely a lot of .edu addresses in the sign-up sheet about CIA's interest in alien DNA. Now, people have said, well, since World War II, we didn't sequence the entire human genome until 1990s. I agree. But what's to say that that discovery was made because if you believe in the Roswell story, if you're a believer in Roswell, that a crash happened and that bodies were recovered, it makes sense to me that those bodies may have been stored 
somewhere, or if not the bodies, tissue samples stored somewhere. And that when the technology advanced enough for this sequencing of the alien DNA to occur, that's when they discovered, hey, there are sequences that are similar, if not exact, to human DNA. I think that is what CIA discovered to the point that it then uh, what I was told, again, with no evidence, this is what I was told, we had an interest in certain familial lines that had this enhanced alien DNA and that all of us have alien DNA, but certain familial lines had a more enhanced version of this DNA. How do I prove that? They didn't present me with any documents. I took it on the word of a very senior CIA officer who would have access to that kind of information. And so that's that part of the story. <clears throat> the reptilian saurian part is, again, uh, I said that when I experience other entities, the entities that I experience tend to be of the reptilian, highly evolved reptilian saurian type. So I associate aliens with saurians. Now, other people who never seen a saurian in their experience, but may have seen greys, may not associate it with saurians and may say greys or may say mantis beings. But I've never had extensive experience with those other entities. Mine were saurian reptilians, highly evolved. So in the slide, how do I present this all together? And so I equated it to saurians with DNA that may be in us. So that was that slide. And if you remember, I put a lot of question marks in that slide. I put in like that it's speculation, but informed in the sense that I was informed about alien DNA, speculation that it was Saurian. Now people have come back to me saying, you can't prove it. And I agree with them, I can't prove it. If you choose to disbelieve, disbelieve everything, I, I welcome you to do so. Um, and because I'm not here to proselytize or to convey certain beliefs. This isn't a religion. You don't have to believe it. Um, you can appreciate the full scope of ufology without actually believing in it. Um, but when it, people experience things, um, it does bother me that people attack the other people who are experiencers. It's their experience, and I honor their experience, even though it might not be mine. It certainly does feel like a religion, though, at times, John. I'm not going to lie, especially in my my short time doing this. It's, people are very passionate about it, and there are a range of beliefs, and I think that's how religion itself works anyway, isn't it? That you can interpret one passage of a book in many different ways and, and live your life accordingly, and your opinions and beliefs are shaped by those. So, yeah, it's it's, it's a very it's an incredible subject, and that's why I like talking about mm -hmm. a breadth across it. You've answered a few questions or touched on a few, at least within your response there. So thanks to Tommy, um, your question was kind of touched on. Um, Dave had a question on what you were talking about around the Roswell DNA. And his question was, can you speak about the implications with regard to hybrid DNA, especially concerning any similarities between human DNA and the DNA of the Roswell craft occupants, which you've touched on? What are those implications that we have a similar DNA to species that are potentially non-human. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, UAPAM. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right inside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little
the stairs and there he was. Like you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. Consider your space, consider your life. 